I mentioned to you this morning that we were basically doing an evaluation that <clears throat> we were taking a look as maybe a dad would with his family or a boss with his corporation and we were evaluating and we were saying these are the things that we have done well and these are the things that we might need improvement on or these are the things that we have failed at and if we as a church are going to grow corporately and that's what we want to do but in order to grow corporately we've got to grow individually we can't go corporately so many times we think well the church we're talking about the building no you are the church so if we are going to grow corporately we must grow individually and one of the things that we need to do in order to grow is see where we have strengths and then see where we have weaknesses or areas for we would say it this way improvement and one of the areas uh, that I see as a pastor uh, here at Open Bible is that I believe that we could grow more in prayer. Uh, I think that our church as a whole, that we could make corporate prayer a, a greater emphasis and be able to do things to be able to structure uh, our church, that prayer would become a hallmark of Open Bible. So many times people think that the work of the ministry is doing this or that or the other thing. I'm telling you, the work of the ministry is done in prayer. That is the work of the ministry. That does not relegate us to just sit back and not do anything. No, but we need to pray realizing that if anything is going to get done, it's going to get done because God is doing it through us. Listen, the worst thing that can happen for us at Open Bible is for us to succeed, listen, for us to succeed without being a praying people. The worst thing that can happen is for us to succeed without being a praying people. Now, the irony of that is we would succeed in man's eyes, but we would not be succeeding in God's eyes. And so for us as believers, we need to understand, and I said, if we are going to become a praying church, we've got to understand that it is, and we've got to accept this belief and then live it out, that it's the privilege and responsibility of every believer to pray. It is the privilege and responsibility for every believer to pray. I mentioned two things to you this morning, and I'm just going to briefly mention them to you, and then we're going to get into uh, the third aspect the third condition for prayer James has given us four conditions for prayer the first one is we're to pray for the afflicted and then I mentioned to you not only are we to pray for the afflicted those who are underneath difficult circumstances we're not talking about a physical affliction we're talking about more troubles and difficulties and trials and, and things like that but then secondly we are to pray for the sick the Bible tells us not only are we to pray for the afflicted but we're to pray for the sick they're, they're the first two conditions that we are to pray for. But then, you see here in verses 17 and 18, I see that we're to pray for our country. We are to pray for 
our country. Take a look in verse 17. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and heaven gave, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. I have a quote in there for you in your outline there. If you're taking notes, it says, the most godly response to problems is prayer. The most godly response to problems is prayer. I want to give you a letter A first, a little bit of background on these two verses right here. It tells us here that Elias or Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. What is this portion of Scripture talking about? It, you can find what James is referencing. He's referencing the Old Testament in 1 Kings 17 and 18. And the nation of Israel and Elijah found themselves in a very bad situation. There was a drought that was proclaimed by God. And we see here that Elijah prayed that it would not rain, and it did not rain. And it was a drought proclaimed by God through the prophet Elijah as a means of judgment on Ahab the king and the country of Israel, the nation of Israel. What was that for? It was for their idolatry. They had moved away from worshiping the one true God to worshiping Baal and many other gods. The drought, as recorded in Scripture, lasted three and a half years. And then because of that, the, the nation was underneath great economic strain. And there was great conflict at this time between the prophets of Baal and, and uh, um, the, the, the God that the nation was worshiping and Elijah. And if you remember the story with me, the narrative, the historical account that God has recorded for us in 1 Kings, how Elijah and the prophets of Baal, they went up to uh, uh, the mountain and, and the prophets of Baal, they continued to pray and pray and pray and nothing happened. And then Elijah prayed and it started to rain and God, well, God consumed the, the uh, offering off the altar and the altar and all the dust it says and then it started to rain. So what was the point of all that? God was trying to show the nation through something physical what they were actually experiencing something spiritual. God used the drought to be able to reveal to them, look, this is really your spiritual condition. You are dried up as a nation spiritually. You, you're not flourishing as a nation spiritually. There's no fruit, if you will, as a nation spiritually. The ground was hard. Their heart was hard, if you will, and it was, it was dried out. They weren't following God. They were going their own way. They were doing their own thing. And it was a way that God took the spotlight and shone it upon their spiritual condition. I can't help but think this evening that America is not unlike Israel. America is not unlike Israel. Folks, we are in a spiritual drought. We have a whole lot of religion and we've got a whole lot of spirituality. But we don't have a whole lot of the Lord God. Anything to do with God or anything to mention God or that Jesus Christ is the only way is 
totally shunned, turned against. We don't want anything to do with it. We are fine without God. See, though many in our country would claim to be Christians, the priorities and the lifestyles of those who claim to be Christians speak drastically different. National stats say that the church attendance throughout our nation is in decline and there's little to no regard for the things of God. I was recently speaking to a, a, a pastor uh, and, and uh, just discussing some things and he had talked to me about how his attendance and the lack of faithfulness on the part of those who claim Christ as their personal savior. Folks, if that's the way supposed Christians are, then where do you think the rest of the nation is? If we're to be the salt and light, if we're to be the ones that are to make, if you will, uh, allow me a little bit of liberty, but make um, the glories of the cross look good to the world outside, if we're to be the ones to make Jesus look appealing that He's really changed our life and we are not revived spiritually, then where do you think our nation is? Why is it that, as I mentioned this morning, that, that uh, there is so little concern for prayer? The least, attended, the least attended of all meetings in the church are prayer meetings. And they should be the most attended. You know what I find interesting, and I, I just want you to think about something. Remember, we're, we're sitting around the coffee table, as I told you, and as a dad would speak to a family. And I want you to think about something. And where our desires and our priorities are at. If I were to mention to you that, hey, we're going to be having a fellowship, a, a dinner on the grounds, or whatever the case may be, it's amazing how many people show up. And by the way, I'm glad that they show up, you know, because hopefully they'll hear the gospel, they'll hear the word of God, and something will change their heart. So I, I don't disparage that. I don't get on folks for that. Well, they only show up when we're having food. Okay, well, at least they're sitting through the service, you know. But then if I were to mention that, hey, we're going to have a prayer meeting. We, we need to pray. It's amazing how much we will put our physical bodies in front of our spiritual bodies. I, I just want us to think. I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to beat anybody up. I'm not trying to be unkind. I just want us to think if, if we really do believe that, that prayer changes things and that we can get a hold of God, then should not praying and praying for the afflicted and praying for the sick and praying for our country be something that we should be busy about? Not only do I see the background, but I see the example here of Elijah. You know, seeing what's going on in our country today and, and over the past many years, watching the decline of America really before our very eyes and the disregard for God, it's easy. I don't know about you, but maybe sometimes it is easy to get discouraged and, and to lose hope for any type of revival 
or turn around. And sometimes we just might become stoic and we might be say, well, we just quietly resign. We're just going to quietly resign. Well, this is the way things are going to be. Things aren't going to change. You know, that's not what the Bible tells us to do. The Bible doesn't tell us to become stoic. The Bible doesn't tell us to say, well, what is, you know, will be. That's just it. That's, the Bible doesn't tell us to be that way. The Bible tells us to pray. And the example that's given is Elijah. And as I mentioned to you just a few moments ago, Elijah and the nation of Israel were in serious trouble. And what did he do? He prayed and God answered his prayer. The excuse that we may give as believers is we might say that, well, Elijah was a prophet. I want you to take a look, if you will, please, in verse 17. In verse 17. It says, Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. You might say, well, Elijah was a prophet, and no wonder God answered his prayer. Elijah was a man of great miracles. No wonder God answered his prayer. He was a great servant of God, and that's why God answered his prayer. And therefore, since I don't have a Christian life like Elijah, I am, I'm nothing like him. I'm not going to see answers to prayer. James shoots that totally down. He said, Elijah was a man subject unto like passions as we are. You know what James doesn't say? James does not say Elijah was a great prophet. James does not say Elijah was a great miracle worker. James does not say that uh, Elijah was a great man of God. James doesn't highlight anything special about Elijah, but what he does highlight is, number one, he was a man. He was a human being. And number two, that he had uh, passions just like we have. It's to have the same emotional constitution or physical circumstances that we have. He was characterized. He was made just like we are. The only difference, I'll tell you this evening, the only difference between us and Elijah is that Elijah was a man who prayed and believed God was going to answer prayer. That's the difference. It wasn't that he was a great prophet. It wasn't that he was a miracle worker. It wasn't that he was a servant of God. He was a man just like us, but he was a man that prayed. And James is telling us, that he was just like us. She said, well, how else do you know he was just like us? In, in 1 Kings uh, 17, 11, it says that he was hungry. You know, somebody who's supernatural, they don't, they don't need food. In 1 Kings 19, 3, it says that he was afraid. Somebody who's supernatural, they, they, they don't get afraid because they're supernatural. It says that he got depressed in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 3, and then verses 19 through 14. And yet, through it all, it says that he prayed earnestly. Literally, you know what that means? He prayed with prayer. And incredible things happened. And it did not rain for three and a half years. And then he prayed again, and the skies poured down rain. See, the point is this evening, we're eliminating the excuse. And the point is that the prayer of a righteous man, and a prayer of a righteous man that prayed earnestly, God answered that prayer. You say, well, what's a righteous man? It's one who is obedient unto God. It says that, we could put it this way, Elijah was a obedient man. And it says that he prayed earnestly. It was, he was determined in his prayer. There was a continual, continual nature of his prayer to see the hand of God move. Move. 
I want you to think with me just for a moment how our world has progressed in power. You think with me, we first started out with manpower, didn't we? And we went from manpower to horsepower. Now you can take that in a couple ways. You could take that as the, the horse and buggy or you can take that that something that has a, a hemi in it, you know, horsepower like that. But we've moved from manpower to horsepower. And then we went from horsepower to nuclear power or atomic power. And most people in the world today would say that atomic power, nuclear power, that is the greatest power upon the face of the earth. You say, oh man, we're, we're concerned about North Korea getting nuclear weapons because if, if North Korea gets nuclear weapons, then man, that guy could destroy the world. We don't want anybody that's not stable having control of nuclear power. Why? Because that's the greatest power upon the face of the earth. Can I tell you this evening that that's not the truth? The greatest power upon the face of the earth is a saint that is believing God in prayer. Do you realize that every single revival that happens has happened has not happened because of great preaching, but it has happened because of people praying. Hey, your winsome attitude and your, your charismatic personality and your way with words does not win people to Christ. It's that people are praying for that person. Now, that may be used of God to be able to win somebody to Christ, but let me tell you something. It's people that pray for the lost that they would get saved and God moves upon the heart. See, the greatest power that we have this evening is the power of prayer. And we as believers... We need to be praying for our nation. Write this down if you would, please, if you're taking notes. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul says to Timothy, I exhort, therefore, first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. What do you think would happen to our country if the people of Open Bible Baptist Church, if we got together on a Wednesday evening and started to cry out to God, started to beg God to do something in our town, in our state, and in our country? Do you, do you think that God could start putting good Christian people into office and that there could be righteous judgment made? Or do you just think it's just too far gone? Our, our society is just too far gone. We, we can't do anything now. I mean, look at, look at, we've got Ahabs all around us, and we've got Jezebels all around us, and they're, they're perverting our, our nation, and, and it's, just, it's just too far gone. I'm glad Elijah didn't feel that way. The only reason that our nation is too far gone is because we as a people will not get on our knees and we will spend earnest time in prayer with God asking Him to turn our nation back. But friends, before He ever turns our nation back, He needs to turn our hearts back to Him. See, the reason that prayer uh, and prayer meetings are the least attended type of uh, gathering for the church this evening, it's not because prayer doesn't work and it's not because God doesn't want to hear from us, but it's our heart problem. We need to ask God to do a, heart, uh, a work in our heart and in our life. Believers are to pray for the afflicted. Believers are to pray for the sick. Believers are to pray for our country. And then this evening, the fourth condition you are to pray for the wanderer. 
verses 19 and 20. You're to pray for the wanderer. Now, granted, I understand the context here, and this is the reason why I'm mentioning this. It does not say that specifically, but it's implied. This whole context, it does not say you are to pray for the wanderer. But this whole context, remember, you have to look at Scripture in context. And this whole context is talking about prayer. As I mentioned to you this morning, prayer is mentioned seven times in these verses. Brethren, verse 19, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth a sinner from the error of his ways shall save his soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. The first thing that we see here, letter A, is the issue. The issue. The issue is found in verse 19. It says, err from the truth. That means to be deceived. It means to be led astray. It's to disbelieve gradually. It's like this. I remember when I was a little kid, I was at my uh, dad's mother's house. We called her Mama. So I was at Mama's house, and Mama had a candy bowl. And I remember when I was really little, we came, we went there for dinner. And so my little hand, a five-year-old or four-year-old hand, I don't know, I was sitting there, and the candy bowl was there, and I was going like this. Walking my fingers to the candy bowl, my dad said, Son, you can't have any candy until after dinner. Don't touch the bowl. And so I'd move my hand back, and then very slowly I would... He says, Son, you can have candy after dinner, but don't touch the bowl. Move my hand back in the... Then I got real close and I went, hmm. I saw my dad got up, grabbed my hand. I said, don't touch the bowl. I didn't do it. Well, I didn't go like that. No, 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 no. I was gradually, step by step, going from where I, going from where I should have stayed to where I wanted to go. To err from the truth is to move from where you once were and to gradually or slowly disbelieve or to be led astray. The Bible says that we are to pray for the wanderer. If you see a brother that errs from the truth, it's that have wandered off from the truth. You say, well, what's the truth? The truth is the Word of God. How do we know that? John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. But I want you to take a look because too many times I think that um, we get this passage confused. We need to take a look here at what it says. Who is the one that's wandered from the truth? You cannot wander from something that you have not had. It's a brother. It's a believer. I do not believe that James is talking about the unsaved. He said, brethren, if any of you wander from the truth. Brethren, how many times has he used that phrase over and over in the book of James, and it's always meant believers. Now, you mean to tell me throughout the whole book, now he's going to switch to just talking about brothers who are, who are of the flesh? No. You cannot wonder from something that you have not had. 
Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, it's a believer. You say, well, what, what are you trying to tell us, Pastor? It is a believer that is now living in error or in sin. They are no longer holding on to the truth of God's Word. They have stumbled. They have strayed from the Word of God. So what are we to do? Well, letter B, there's the intervention. When there's a brother or sister straying from the truth, what are we to do? We are to most certainly to pray. We are to most certainly to pray, but we're also to help. You know, intervention's been a big term over the past 20 years. We, we've, you hear that a lot, and what is that? It's, when, it's where a family or friends step in to be able to help someone. And that's what the church is to do when they see... Now listen, this is what the church is to do when they see a brother or sister straying from the truth. They are to step in and help. This is the responsibility of the, the person who sees it. So many times, uh, if we're not careful, we'll say, well, that's the responsibility of the pastor. No, if you see someone, I may not know about it, but if you see someone straying from the truth, maybe in, inadvertently, but they're stating something that's not doctrinally pure, maybe inadvertently just because they don't know. What are you supposed to do? Well, you're supposed to run around and tell everybody in the church. You're supposed to go run and tell the pastor, and he's supposed to go fix it. No. He says, brethren, he's talking to the church, to other believers, if any of you do err from the truth, and you see a brother or sister erring from the truth, it's your responsibility as a believer to go to them and put your arm around them and say, hey, can I talk to you for a second? I, I see something here, and, and I, I'm concerned for you. I, I, I want to I try and be able to help, and, and there, there's some red flags that are being raised in some of the things that you're saying uh, and talking about spiritually. See, but if we're going to help a brother or sister in Christ, guess what? If we're, we need to do it in love. And if you're praying, you're to pray for the wanderer. If you're praying for that person, you will be able to do it in love if you're praying the right way. The Bible tells us, what? That we are to uh, um, um, help them and encourage them. Proverbs 10, 12 says, Hatred stirreth up strife, but love, covers, love covereth all sins. But I want you to see what else it says here. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him. Ah, see, pastor, that's what it's talking about. It's talking about convert. He's getting saved. See, no, you're wrong. It's talking about the unsaved and convert him. Well, I could understand why you may say that. But if you look up what the word convert means, it means to turn. That's true. It does. Or to return. Now remember, when you study the Bible, you have to look at it in context. Brethren, if any one of you do err from the truth, they're not turning to the truth for the first time. If any of you do err from the truth, so it's not convert in, I'm turning to Christ now. I once was lost, but now I'm saved. That's not the convert he's talking about. If any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, what does it mean? Not only to turn, but it means to return. And so what he's saying here is if you see one and you help them return, 
James used the same word, uh, Jesus used the same word. I want you to turn over to Luke here, chapter 22. He uses this exact same word in Luke chapter 22. And we know at this time that Peter was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. But look at what Jesus says of Peter. In verse 32 of Luke chapter 22. Luke twenty-two thirty-two. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith... Uh, did you see? Wait a second. That, that thy faith... So he's already a believer, right? That thy faith fail not. Now take a look here. And when thou art, what's that next word? Converted. Strengthen. Now look at these next two words. Thy brethren. Hmm. Hmm. That word convert, converted is the exact same word that James uses. And he's telling Peter, look, I'm praying for you. This is right before Peter denies Christ. But when you've returned, he's saying, Peter, I know that you're going to turn away, but when you return, strengthen the brethren. You know, the implication is almost, look, I'm going to use this. I know that you're going to turn away. I'm praying that you, that, that you won't turn away, but uh, Jesus, who is, is God in the flesh, he knows the future, and so you say, hey, I know that you're going to turn away, but when you return, you're going to be able to use this to help strengthen the brethren. Peter hadn't lost his salvation but he had lost his way. He denied Christ. He erred from the truth. And as believers, we are to pray and we are to intervene to be able to help a person be rescued from the error of their ways. You say, Pastor, well, what, what does this mean for open Bible? Well, what this means for open Bible is, is Pastor, if I'm evaluating things, then I'm going to take a look at things and say, how can we make corporate prayer how can we make prayer more of a staple of our spiritual diet here at Open Bible? What can we do to have more, more time of, uh, and more time for corporate prayer? What can we do to remind us to pray for the afflicted, for the sick, for, for our country, and for the wanderer? Oh, these aren't the only things that we can pray for. These are just the things that James had mentioned. There's many more things that we can pray for. But it gives us a good start. So maybe it's taking a look and stepping back and saying, how are we doing things? What are we doing? And what does this mean for us as, as a church if, if we're going to obey the injunction of, of what James has given us in the Word of God? If we're going to be obedient unto this, what does this mean? Are we just going to walk out this evening and everything just be just like it always was? No, I believe that once we hear the Word of God, that we need to apply the Word of God, and then if that means that we need to make changes in our life and, and corporately, then that's what we do to be able to act upon the Word of God. Oh, we don't want to be, as we come to concluding the book of James here, we, we don't want to be just hearers of the Word. We want to be doers. We don't want just want to talk about it. We want to act upon it. Say, Pastor, so what do you want us to do? I want, I want us, as I said this morning, my invitation is going to be the same. I want you to evaluate your private prayer life. 
And then I want you to evaluate your corporate prayer life. Where's prayer on your priorities? Where is prayer on your priorities? I mean, is it something that we just tack on? Is it something we just rush through? Look, I don't want you to get stir discouraged in your prayer life because it's very easy to get discouraged in the prayer life. Because many times prayer, with prayer you have to wait. And sometimes, let's just be honest, let's just put it down to the ground level here. Sometimes what happens is, since we don't see God moving, we think that prayer is not working. And what do we do? We give up. We'll give up praying for that person, for their soul. We'll give up maybe praying for the situation because, it, man, since I started praying, it's getting worse. It's not getting better. You know, one of the things the Bible tells us not to do is not to get weary in well-doing. One of the greatest works, one of the hardest things that I do, not counseling, not soul winning, but prayer. It's probably the hardest work that I've ever done. I've done physical labor. And I've done other types of labor, but I'm telling you, prayer, it is work. And it's hard work. But just because it may be hard at times, and just because it is work, does not mean that we as a church should not make it our priority. The only way that we are going to grow corporately is if we grow individually. Isn't it amazing? I want you to think about something and then I'll close. Again, I'm not trying to beat you up. I'm just, I want us to think about this because I think we all struggle with prayer at times. Isn't it amazing when there is a great difficulty in our life how much time we find for prayer? Isn't it amazing? There's a sense of urgency about us. There's a begging of God. God, you have to do something. Please do something. God, I don't know how I'm going to get through. You've, you've got to change this. There's a sense of urgency, and we have all the time in the world for prayer. But then when things seem to be going, okay, that's an indictment on our part that God would be so good to be able to bless us and then we treat him like a second-class citizen because I'm just too busy. How's your prayer life? I can guarantee you that if we take this seriously, that God will do something in our midst.